Today's dead idea, technocracy. And we're breaking new ground today. This is our first ever venture into alternate history. That's right. Today we are exploring the question, what if the technate succeeded? How would history be different? And what would that world be like? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is fuming with fury today because she has found herself living in a timeline where her favorite movie, American Psycho, was never made. <laughs> Do you guys know American Psycho? Yes. It's yes. all about, like, a young 80s businessman, right? So yes, <laughs> that's, that's not going to be part of our technique today, so... <laughs> Yeah, so John and Ingrid, thank you for being on the show once again. Sure, thanks for having me. Of course, thank you. Listeners, get your reviews in on Stitcher. Remember, the first 20 people to do so get their portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Yours could be next. Okay, on to our show. All right, so today is going to be a great big what if. What if, as the technocrats of the 1930s proposed, the U.S. and Canada and possibly other nations joined together to create the North American technate. Specifically, we're going to be trying to answer three questions. First, how might that have come about? Like what historical events might have actually allowed a technate to form? Second, how would world history be different? What would happen with World War II, for example? And finally, what would it be like to live in a technate today, in 2018, but in that alternate world where the technate exists? You know, including the fact that there would be real-world problems like racism, drugs, terrorism, stuff like that, environmental crises. What would that be like? Where would Patrick Bateman be? Where would Patrick Bateman be? <laughs> Probably working in a sock factory or something. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, listeners... We have never done this kind of show before, so this is going to be an experiment. It's a first for the show, and as far as I know, a first for history podcasting to do an alternate history game on the air. All right, I am going to start off by presenting very, very quickly the only plan I was able to find at all from a technocratic writer for how this transition to a technique might happen. And it's the most tentative possible plan. It's not like, this is what we're going to do. But Harold Lebb in his book, Life in a Technocracy, did propose, maybe this is how it could happen. Kind of a deal. Six easy steps. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. I'll let you <laughs> decide. And when we do our alternate timeline, we can deviate from it or incorporate parts of it, depending on what we think is realistic. Okay, so according to Lebb, step one is, first of all, some people prepare for the coming technocracy. Mainly that would be the technocrats. They're going to get ready, you know, to be able to take control when the price system collapses and somebody needs to step in, right? <laughs> okay. Step two, repeal the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is the act that prevents companies from forming monopolies, mm -hmm. hmm. which is, you know, awful if it's just like run with no regulation. Right. But under the technate, things are pretty much a monopoly anyway. The government has a monopoly on each industry. Right. And you'd be making strides toward that if you allowed each industry at least to, you know, congeal into one company, like as a monopoly, right? But 
then they can jack the prices up to the point that they're just raping people left and right, right? So the next step, well, number three is big corporations merge into the monopolies. But step number four is profits are limited to a reasonable profit, and the suggested profit is 6%. I don't know how they came up with 6% or how they would apply that universally across different industries, but that's what he said. So in other words, you can't just raise your prices to the point where people are destitute. There's a limited amount of price gouging that a monopoly could do under his plan. Right. Somehow this has to be instituted by the government, by a law. I don't know how you'd pass that kind of law, but that's... Are these markups that are 6% or your profit is limited to 6% of... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Yeah, because okay. that makes me wonder a lot about like what they're basing that off of. If that was like an average for businesses within a certain sector at a time, yeah, or sure. I don't know, or average growth. I've... Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think markup because markups, as I know them, are much larger than six sure. percent. So, sure. Uh, mm, I mm. think it depends on industries. So anyway, the idea is the economy, though still capitalistic, is starting to merge in the direction okay. of integrated industries. And also, there's a particular consequence of this reasonable profit of 6%. The monopoly would naturally want to make as much money as it could, so it would always max out its prices to the 6%, right? Which means that prices would be fixed. Mm -hmm. They're no longer hooked to supply and demand. They're just maxed out at the legal limit. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the whole idea of pricing is going to start to feel really kind of arbitrary. Because it's just like the government is just deciding what prices are. It's not based on market at all anymore. Like, why do we even need prices in the first place? Is sure. starting starting that kind of thinking going. Right. There's an intermediate step there that somehow technological economies are handed over to workers. I don't know how that's accomplished either. Um, <laughs> but that's step five. And then step six is everybody realizes that prices are dumb. <laughs> and they demand a technocracy. <laughs> so that's how he thought it might happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that could get our creative juices flowing. Yeah. Right. Now, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to lay out some cards that have events as they were happening up until 1932. And then from 1932, we can start diverging in the timeline. Okay? Okay. So... Okay, so first of all, 1914 to 1918, World War I happens. It's awful, it sucks, and it causes a lot of people, and this is historically true, uh, causes a lot of people to lose their faith in democracy because democratic elected leaders got them into that war, you know, etc. And it also causes a craze for centralized direction of production because the economy was mobilized for the war effort and they saw what that could do. So those two things starting to change people's minds. 1929, of course, the stock market crashes and the Great Depression happens. 1929 to 1933, over in Canada, because remember, we got to somehow get Canada on board with this deal. Canada's affected by the Depression, too, quite a bit. Their gross national expenditure drops by 42 percent. And they've got, like, rampant unemployment. It's, like, over 12% for the entire 30s. One in five are dependent on government relief. And the Western provinces in particular are hard hit because they depend on exports. And basically, the international market just kind of falls flat. 
So they've got nobody to sell them to anymore. 1932 to 1934, the techno craze. That is the heyday of technocracy as far as the public appeal of it is concerned. Oh, one other thing. One other thing I wanted to add. 1932, there's a U.S. election, and that's when Roosevelt is elected. Okay. He was running against Herbert Hoover, which everybody blamed for the Great Depression. It was a landslide. Yeah. And that is where we can begin to diverge if we wish. And as we go along and as it becomes relevant, I've got a few other historical things that did actually happen in the U.S. and Canada, but they might not happen in our timeline. So we'll see if they come up. Now, how the game is going to work is we'll go around the table and each person can take an index card and introduce any kind of event or change of events anywhere in the timeline. If you want to go, you know, what happens next after the techno craze, or if you want to go back in time or forward in time or insert it in between, okay. any of those things are fine. But our goal is somehow for the technate to come about in a reasonably realistic way. Does that kind of make sense? Sure. Yes. Okay, good. Okay, so I will go first. So I want to say something like the technocrats, they predicted like like the collapse of the price system, right? In 1933, mm-hmm. they were thinking, like, within a year, like 1934. And then in the last episode we saw, 1937, they were predicting by 1940. So I feel like there should be, like, another drop, like, another stock market crash. So I think I'll say, let's just go with 1940. I'll go with 1940. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Okay. All right. So you can throw out ideas as you will. Um, just going around naturally, maybe like John, but if anybody just wants to jump in, even if it's not your turn, I'm cool with that. Okay. So one idea that I have in here, and I don't know timeline stuff well enough for the war, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to need a little help with this, Yep. but it would be interesting if somewhere in here, say 36, Mm -hmm. an anti-interventionist kind of isolationist Mm -hmm. figure is elected to replace Roosevelt. Oh, okay. To push us away from entering the war, thus stopping us from ramping up to war production, thus, okay. you know, feeding into the stock market crash. So in the in the historical 1936 election, Roosevelt ran against a guy named Alf Landon okay. that was just like a horribly ineffectual campaigner. He didn't even really travel hardly for his campaign, and he just lost by a million so I think it's totally believable. Could and... have been a better, like, primary opponent or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go with, there was never an Elf Landon in the running, but instead somebody, should we give him a name? Yeah. I'm going to say Tad Roberts. Tad Roberts. President Tad Roberts. Okay. Excellent. And he's, his main policy is stay out of the war. Yep. Because we don't want to waste our money and our boys when we're having this, uh, this depression. depression. Right. Yeah. And also Roosevelt had to fight super hard to get us into the war in the first place. Lots of people were anti-interventionist. In fact, the majority of American populace didn't want to enter World War II at the time. Right. Till Pearl Harbor and whatnot. Yep. All right. Cool. Any ideas, Ingrid? Um, so I'm just spitballing here. When was the Hoover Dam constructed? Okay. So uh, we can look that up. I... I'm trying to think if... Something goes wrong with the construction of the Hoover Dam. <laughs> Hoover, Hoover Dam, Dam incident that could—I don't know if that would shake people's faith 
in centralized hydrology or in Roosevelt's hydrology plan? Constructed between 1931 and 1936. So let's say... It was a a means of combating the Great Depression by providing something that would have a lot of jobs to employ people. Okay. What if it was a sign that price-controlled government construction that has to rely on actual currency instead of just... And poor technology is prone to failure Mm -hmm. and that you need to have like total... Centralized direction. Exactly. Just direct. Cut out the middleman of the dollar bill. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. So you say like, so it was finished construction in 1936 was when it was done. So like maybe 35, there's a catastrophic failure. Because it would have been like half built at that time. And it would have been taking on some water probably. Yes. So if it catastrophically fails and kills a bunch of workers and obviously wastes a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Okay. At this point, I'm going to flesh out Canada a little bit more in this time period that we're talking about. Okay. 1932 to 1936, in order to combat the Great Depression, Canada, having all these unemployed workers, institutes something called relief camps, where the unemployed are... The things I read stopped short of saying forced, but the impression I got was forced to go to these relief camps to labor for 20 cents a day building roads and digging ditches. And at their height, up to 20,000 people were in these camps. It was highly unpopular, and there was a riot in Regina, the Regina Riot of 1935, as a protest. Hmm. All right. And just to bring it on board, since we've gone as far as 1940 being our second stock market crash... Just before that, 1939, World War II starts officially with uh, the Nazis invading Poland, the Soviets agreeing to divide Poland with them, and that brings Canada into the war along with the rest of the Commonwealth of Britain. And that also turns around Canada's Great Depression because suddenly now you can employ everybody in the war effort. Right. So. All right, at this point, we started discussing what would have happened if World War II had gone differently, as you do in virtually all alternative histories. And I'm just going to summarize the whole lot of the speculation and riffing and stuff that we did here uh, in order to speed you on to the really good stuff, right? But our whole point, of course, of talking about World War II being different is to step-by-step bring the American and Canadian populace to a point where technocracy starts to look like it's got something going on. All right, let's see how that happens. Uh, So as we've seen in our alternate history timeline, the U.S. was taking an even more interventionist route than it did in true history. So we decided that the U.S. manages to stay out of World War II, at least in Europe. It does sell arms to the Allies, and this provides enough jobs to sort of mitigate the second stock market crash somewhat. But most of the wealth generated is co-opted by fat cats at the top of the military-industrial complex, The rich, the one percenters, while the average worker sees very little of it, and this causes the American worker to chafe, beginning to call for nationalization of industries as a means of, like, taking away the monopolies of the corporate fat cats and evening things out of it. At the same time, the war in Europe goes quite differently than it did in true history. In our alternate history timeline, Germany manages to invade Britain with a land army, but it takes so long to subdue Britain 
that the Soviet Union manages to overwhelm Germany from the other side, so that everything that Germany conquered, including Britain, ends up as a Soviet satellite state, and the Soviet Union basically wins World War II. Now, this spells bad news for Canada, because despite the valiant efforts of its formidable military, Canada expends nearly all of its resources in the war effort only to lose its most valuable ally, Britain, placing it in desperate straits. So goes the war in Europe. Meanwhile, although the U.S. successfully stays out of European engagements, it faces a different quandary in the Pacific. Historically now, in true history that is, one of the reasons that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor was because Roosevelt discontinued supplying Japan with the oil that it needed for its war machine. And Pearl Harbor was an attack designed to cripple the U.S. Pacific Fleet in one fell blow because almost all of the, the U.S. Uh, ships were supposed to be there at that one time. So they wanted to cripple the U.S. Pacific Fleet in one fell blow so that the Japanese could go on to capture the U.S. oil depots in California. However, a number of ships that were supposed to be at Pearl Harbor at the time by chance happened to be elsewhere and survived the attack, and the Japanese never did make it to California. But what if they had? So in our alternate timeline, we kind of follow up on that thread of thinking there. With isolationist President Tad Roberts in office, the U.S. is even more motivated to refuse the sticky entanglements of trade with Japan, and consequently, the Japanese, desperate for oil once again, mount a surprise attack. But this time, they manage to cripple the entire U.S. fleet and land an invasion force in California. Now, this places the U.S. in a world of hurt, of course. But Canada, when Canada sees this, they're like, oh, crap, we just lost Britain and now we've got the Japanese nearly on our doorstep. We can't let this happen because they figure if Japan defeats America, They'll be next, so Canada comes to America's aid. Meanwhile, the U.S. population is freaking out. They have never had to fight a war against a foreign enemy on their own soil, and this pushes them to extreme measures. The distrust of the fat cat one percenters reaches a fever pitch, and the calls for nationalization of industries is finally heated. The military-industrial complex is fully nationalized, and what's more, the government institutes a massive economy-wide program of total conscription, where every man, woman, and child is mobilized for the war effort. Now, this plan was historically proposed by the technocrats, and likewise proposed by them in our alternate history timeline as well. So by 1945, the combined efforts of the U.S. and Canada managed to push Japan off of the North American continent. And this joint action leads to a very close alliance between the U.S. and Canada, very close ties. This war in North America rallies the economy, but also destroys a lot of West Coast infrastructure, and basically both the U.S. and Canada are left in a precarious situation, and there's intense debate in the post-war period about how best to recover. They're looking at all kinds of different ideas and completely doubting the way things have been done in the past. The second stock market crash, the Hoover Dam disaster, and the exploitation of the one percenters have all driven home the idea that free market capitalism is just too hazardous to continue. While the achievements of nationalized wartime industries and the total conscription program demonstrated the power of centralized direction enough that people begin to sing the glories of strong government control. 
So the post-war period sees close observation of other countries with potential models to you know copy from, and the one that everybody is looking at is really the Soviet Union. I mean, they won World War II after all in this timeline. So they provide a possible model for a new centrally planned economy in North America, but the Americans and Canadians felt that they could take the best aspects of the Soviet system while avoiding its pitfalls, and so they begin to look around for a model that comes from a little bit closer to home, and it's about this time that the technocrats return to the main stage. See, all this time, they've been pointing out steadily that, oh, they correctly predicted the second stock market crash in 1940. Oh, their advocacy of centralized planning. Everybody likes centralized planning now. And oh, the success of their total conscription plan is a big gold star in their ledger. And they begin to say, hey, look, you want a system that's kind of like the Soviets, but better? Well, we got one ready to go. So people start to take the technocrats seriously again. And they gain considerable influence in both governments until 1948 sees a watershed moment in which a majority of government officials openly endorse technocratic ideas. So, in other words, in our alternate history timeline, events have conspired to give technocracy a very warm glow and to place it in position to dramatically influence events. A little bit different than how true history went. However, this point in our alternate history game is where we really started to begin to stumble. We were stumbling over the question of how does the transition to full technocracy come about? We, we managed to get technocracy to the edge where people are liking it, where it's in positions of advantage, but how do you get full technocracy to come about? How do you go about that transition? So this is where we're going to pick up here again, because we're really wrestling with this question. Do you think we're ready yet to, to form a technate? <laughs> so there's all of these things happening. Mm -hmm. What do the technocrats do in response to these things, in response to these openings that history is giving them? Right. Well, we know that like armed revolution isn't, was not really in the no. spirit of what they wanted. No. But, they, but educating the F out of people definitely was. So capitalizing mm -hmm. on these developments and pointing out like, here, see, look what's... Look, the reason why Soviet Union is doing so well is because of this, what we want, not because of what they said. They're wrong. We are right. Yeah, it's like a template. So then would we have to have, in the like late 40s, technocrats actually running for office after they've been doing this PR blitz for 10-ish years? So the technocrats themselves yep. always stated that they were not a political organization and will never run anyone for office but they okay. will accept like a government mandate to take over <laughs> like if the government <laughs> asks them to take over they'll do it okay so rather than actually running for these offices themselves this would be more of backroom meetings where they would be talking to and mm. educating people within the government so Consultants, educating experts. their tad roberts's yeah. accepting appointments to cabinets and whatnot yes mm -hmm. but here's where we get to the real crux of the issue what to do about the wealthy. Because it's hard for me to believe that there wouldn't be like some pushback from the established political parties. Oh, and, and anybody with money. Yeah. That's really the big question is what finally gets rid of the, the fat cats? If not guillotines or partisans, <laughs> right. like how do you do it? How do you do that? Where is like nuclear technology at this point? 
Good question. Yeah. So if the U.S. didn't need it for the war, it doesn't feel like they would have in this like kind of like quick Mm -hmm. mobilization defensive war thing. I don't know if anybody would have developed the bomb. (laughs) It's possible. But it's also, I mean, this is our timeline. We can can do whatever we want. uh, Yeah. I mean, learning more about the atom. Right. Just pure (laughs) discovery. I mean, you would have scientists fleeing Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. like Einstein, just a brain drain, just to get away from you know, Nazi Germany and the Soviets as well, and historically came to America. So you would still have the same people interested in the same projects Mm -hmm. there. But if we had technocrats in government, would there be more spending on... Maybe they might be interested less in the weaponization of it and more of the energy aspect. I would say that at some point, maybe we have some kind of energy breakthrough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we can't believe that innovation would happen outside of a war effort, then we can't really believe in the technocracy <laughs> right. as a whole. So. Right. So we have to have some gimmies. Yes, yeah. that's right. So I'm going to say the 1950s sometime. Okay. But we haven't we haven't touched the wealthy yet. No, we have not. What, what could possibly take the money away from the wealthy? Well, if this, or, if you have a second stock market failure, uh-huh. that could seriously deplete the like actual wealth of really wealthy people, aside from just property and like cash. That's true. I also feel like businessmen are pretty good at taking advantage of the bounce back after a crash and just like making shit tons of money while everybody else is suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but between that fluctuation. And the shakeup that occurs and the increasing centralized direct direction having to do with the government and everything where the natural people to turn to to lead that centralized direction is probably the leaders of the corporations. Maybe just they get more and more tied into the government to the point where they feel like they are the ones with power and really are the government. Yep. And then at a certain point, they see an opportunity where they can get more power by just becoming actual government rather than power via the dollar bill or the Canadian dollar. No, that, that makes seem, sense. No, I definitely see, believable? No, no, <laughs> I, I could see people like that being one of the main ways that they could buy into it is if they are the ones who are potentially profiting from it and coming into power. Mm-hmm. So, and the problem, like the whole thing with this like meritocracy system of just like who knows how to do it would fall on people who had previously done it in industry, you know? to lead. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of that is actually part of the technocrats actual plans. Okay. That you would you would take execs, you would take like their top researchers and stuff and those are the people who know about the field, they would become your appointees. Okay, so I've got businessmen become government, sacrifice money for power. Somewhere so in the 50s after nuclear energy. Let's say 1955. Okay. Like basically they are the government monopoly on nuclear energy and that becomes so efficient and so effective and profitable for them in terms of power that all the under other industries are basically they just fall in line kind of sure it's hard to imagine them handing it over to the workers consumers i know we'll, we'll i don't know think that that's gonna to... happen they <laughs> <laughs> have a technocracy in name but not in all of the ideals yeah. uh, unless the worker is the ceo <laughs> <laughs> so are we close enough to say that they you know like scrap the constitution and institute oh, something new yeah i think yeah, at this point like 
Maybe for PR reasons, they call it a technate, even though they know that they're really there for the power. Yeah, and I think like most governments like this that have these ideological things, there's going to be a part of it that's kind of quietly an oligarchy, right. you know, yeah. hiding behind the stuff. But, you know, maybe the technocrats are okay with that if it benefits most people's quality of life. Okay, so technate. 1956. There yes. it is. Cool. All right. Well, so we also managed to answer basically what else is happening in the rest of the world, because that kind of helped us get along there, the whole yep. World War II things. The last thing is, what would it be like then when we advance our timeline to 2018 and think about what would it just be like to live in that North American technique. We've got Canada on board. We've got America on board. Other countries in North America may have voted themselves into the technate once, you know, it seems to be operational and fully functioning and doing well. Yeah. So we got to think about it like this. So in 2018, um, there are 62 year olds who have been born in the technate, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. 62 year olds and younger. So we're getting to a point where there's few people that remember well there's a reasonable number of people that still remember but you're getting to that point where it's mostly just actually elderly people who remember a pure capitalist system okay and most of their memories of it will be highly tainted by the like almost two decades of depression right yep mm -hmm. um so i think in general there might be this sense of have people having emerged into this like into modernity or into this golden age mm -hmm. and probably since propaganda was a big part of what the technique talked about mm -hmm. in their stuff, like yeah. there would probably be some pretty nasty depictions of the, the before time. Yeah, I could see that. I um, could see that. But what would everyday life actually be like? So assuming that we continue using nuclear power mm -hmm. and mobilize like lots and lots of industries, like could we reach that 16 hour week work week? Mm -hmm. and reasonable, like, abundant standard of living for people. I don't know. What do you think? Are you asking if the technocracy would work? <laughs> no, I am, I am asking the whole yeah. table, like, yeah. if that's something that's feasible with the yeah. production technology that we have today and assuming that we would keep roughly the same population figures as we have today. Well, the technocrats at least would say for sure, because they thought even in 1933 that you could have that. Yeah. With the technological level they had there. And that's before nuclear power, before computers, before any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think a big question is what is your standard of living? Yeah. And obviously, we said that what they get as an allowance is based on energy production. Yeah. yeah. So everything's tied to efficiency and use of production. Um, yeah. So use and production. the question is, like, could you have, like you know, 300 million people living at a kind of sustainable, like everybody takes the bus and bicycles to their 16 hours a week mm -hmm. and lives in like apartment blocks or would every, or could everybody live in like 2003 era McMansions mm -hmm. and go to Applebee's every day? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think some like probably, I don't know, sociologists, behavioral economic economists would probably say that, if everyone's sort of at the same level, then it's it's not as big of a deal, you know? Like, uh -huh. where you're at, you know, absolutely, it's it's relative to everyone else. And if everyone else is doing about the same, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at Scandinavia, where there's not as 
huge of a disparity today between like the super wealthy and the super not. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more. There's a lot of social enforcement of egalitarian kind of values. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that c- could become kind of a a value in the technate. Yeah. It could be it be, it could become gauche or like a social faux pas to display more than what the average person thinks is an appropriate level of right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. prestige or whatever yeah so if we imagine if we imagine like a typical day where you just you wake up in the morning yeah right so like what's the first thing you do like in your life now when you wake up in the morning so i think honestly there since we're thinking like a four-day work week uh-huh. um people would probably instantly check in the morning is this a work day am i going in right right um, so there would be like kind of this wake up, uh, uh, oh, it's a Thursday. Okay. I still right. gotta go to work. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. followed by, and I'm just imagining like, I'm picturing that there would be for most folks, they would live in their ur- urbanates, right? Mm-hmm. So these would be small urban centers of like what? 20,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like 20,000 people and you'd have pretty much everything you needed kind of available and within walking distance quote unquote i mean you might have to you know walk a long ways but you wouldn't it wouldn't be huge sprawling metropolis sure so my thought then is that if you're working for four hours um that most people would probably just walk to work at that Mm -hmm. point they would wake up take like an hour to walk to work maybe have breakfast yeah um work for four hours Maybe get done around lunchtime, hang out mm-hmm. with their friends from work, mm-hmm. go home, hang out with their family. I'm wondering, so along the way, like, what what kind of food do you have available at this point in 2018? So I think that depends on a mix of things. So are we assuming that a lot of people are eating based on like the booth system and like kind of homegrown sort of like secondary market stuff? Or are most people handling their food needs on like kind of that basic mass industrialized food thing like canned Mm -hmm. tomato soup or something canned tomato soup like instant oatmeal that kind of thing i don't know what what do you think you're really interested in the cooking bit last episode (laughs) that's like that's a really good question i mean because you'd have so much more extra time yeah yeah you would definitely have the ability to have sort of a, a small farm kind of a hobby farm that you could then trade with your neighbors for but i just yeah, I would probably bet on large industrialized um yeah, I think food growing techniques. Yeah, and they definitely the right the technocratic writers definitely were all about we're going to have high yield agriculture yeah. and the most efficient methods on the least amount of farmland so we can have the most amount of conservation of the rest of the land, etc. Mm-hmm. Um but also I think that you would probably have less importation of like um out of season foods. Sure. And yeah. less importation of maybe even like coffee grown in oh, South yeah. America. <laughs> I know I was going to say that probably, South America better be part of this t- yeah. <laughs> technique. You would, you would probably um, develop something more homegrown for your stimulant needs. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, please tell me there'll be a coffee replicator. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's bringing up tra- Star Trek again, though, and the food thing you do see in Star Trek, now that it's our standard for everything, but you, even though they can replicate any food they want you see them taking special time out of their day to actually cook with real ingredients just because mm-hmm. it's because it's, it's fun, fun yeah. and yeah. it feels authentic yeah, yeah and sometimes they might even replicate the ingredients 
Yeah, but then do the mm. cooking themselves for the sense of fulfillment. Yeah, and I know that it. they made a big deal about the fact that, like, in one, they either brought this up in Deep Space Nine or in the Next Generation, but like O'Brien grew up on a farm and he had eaten like a reasonable amount of like real food, especially real meat, which a lot of uh, Star Trek people have never had. They mostly just eat like replicated food right. or maintain a roughly vegetarian diet, which is to show you. I think that people in these situations are going to have some fun with this stuff and do kind of like that hobby farm kind of deal. Yeah. Um, they'll probably be doing some locavore, um, like eating local in-season stuff that can be grown on those hobby farms with like the couple of chickens that they're able to keep mm-hmm. if they have enough space for it. I imagine the way that they're describing those um, little towns, they would be more like small single-family home sort of things than like big Soviet-style apartment blocks, but I might be reading that wrong. Yeah, so what they've said in their writings about housing is they would naturally do everything in the most efficient way and of mostly prefabbed parts, Okay. but everything wouldn't necessarily look the same because housing would be built based on the needs of okay. the family, of the community, uh, etc. Okay. So it, it, maybe you'd have a thing kind of like visit some like Southern European towns where it's like all the houses have a general kind of look and all fits together. But you look closer and there's a lot of variety too. Okay. Yeah. Do they talk about how real estate transactions work in... Uh, I, I mean, I would assume that you are provided with housing by the government. And do you inherit? I mean, what happens? You die and... I don't think you even government? have possessions per se. Okay. Possessions... Who possesses what is determined by use. If you're using it, it's yours. So this is like, some of these things almost feel like the anarcho-syndicalist stuff from like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Well, I mean, a lot of that was real philosophies from the early 20th century that was around and kicking around in people's minds at the time. Because the whole idea of just like use Mm -hmm. as opposed to ownership is really interesting to me. How about if we shift gears a little bit now? to like confronting real world problems sure right like um there's any number of them that you could pick out of the blue but i'll start with say like drugs for example Mm -hmm. um you can grow marijuana pretty much anywhere but like cocaine specifically grows best seems in like uh northern south america kind of you know and it feels to me like one of the reasons why a lot of the harder drugs like that that come into America have gotten so potent over the years is because you to like to get across the border, you want to have something that's like takes up the least amount of space, but has the most amount of bang um, for that product. So things get super potent. Mm -hmm. Sure. Same thing with whiskey in the wild West. Like you had to railroad all of those barrels of alcohol out to the wild West. And if it was really strong spirits, it took less space on, you know, the railroad cars. Yep rather than, you know, weak beer or something. Mm-hmm. So so I feel like in the case of cocaine, how would that then interact with having a technate <laughs> so, or, or other drugs like it? Yeah, so I imagine that there would be some smuggling of it in, but given that in the ideal technate we wouldn't have actual law enforcement, we would have a lot of treatment of mm-hmm. these things as actual illnesses as mm-hmm. substance abuse problems and the question is like when would the technique jump in like when would these like pre-crime psychologist types jump in 
Because there are some people who can casually use hard drugs for some time without like serious problems. Right. Some people just don't have the sort of addictive personality. Right. So would they differentiate there? Would they treat everyone equally for substance abuse? Or would they be carefully watching this stuff? Like, would they care about the smuggling so much as like the deleterious effects on society? You know? Yeah. Right. Because given the amount of time people have, like I could see them in some cases turning like... I think even they expected people to turn to drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as for like hard drug stuff, that's... I'm wondering how hard the drugs would get if there isn't that profit motive to get it into the country and then sell it for a very high profit. Right. And, and if of they course, say weaker drugs. Of course, the question then is like, who is... Who's bringing it in, and what is what is their motive for doing so? Right. If they're not, if they're not a member of the technate, yeah, you know, uh huh. Like, are there would there be people on that booth market who would be making goods that could be exported, right, and traded in some way that are have intrinsic value, or or, or do does drugs become like a black market currency to obtain technology or goods made by the technate that's not allowed to be traded abroad whether that's something like oil which they said they weren't Mm -hmm. going to or like the atomic energy i mean Mm. pretty easy to weaponize it and would you want other people in the world having it so would it be no there's there's a lot of these tech things that would get really confusing really hairy because it's like a lot of a lot of our current way of like technological development is private and it's based on the idea of selling it to as many people as possible right. and like getting it all over the place. Yeah. Where if it's, if you're not interested in exporting that stuff, then you would have less, like in the external world, you would have like less trade in tech, less development based on previous developments. Mm-hmm. So it might slow things down a little bit in general. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is you would create this like weird imbalanced market where it's like a smartphone might be worth like a pound of cocaine or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> or whatever yeah. the the exchange rate is. Yeah. Or it, not to say smartphone is just a random example right, of technology, sure. but I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious about that. Like I do feel like drugs would make for a pretty useful like black market currency Mm -hmm. because of the potential like portability and like intrinsic value to a lot of people kind of like people used to use like liquor in some ways in a similar way cigarettes in a prison yeah and would you not just produce the what's stopping you from producing the drugs in the well for some some of these things don't grow well in sure but plenty do so so maybe maybe there's a local alternative that people are into well enough that they don't really need the foreign harder drugs yeah i guess at that point would the government despite saying that we are amoral and not making moral decisions for people would they have to step in and say we're not going to have a government factory that's producing a harder drug here would they make it they'd be producing it yeah Yeah. or would it be People like doing meth on the booth market yeah. <laughs> in their kitchens. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, maybe this is just my this is just my opinion, but I think if you've got universal basic income and uh, yeah. all the marijuana you feel like growing, yeah. and smoking, I don't think that you know cocaine is going to be that much yeah. of a problem. But Sounds pretty good to me. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, 
Okay, what about like environmental crises? That sounds kind of messier because it feels like they have this general sense of like wanting to root to conserve land for like, but a lot of their ideas were based on these like general like middle of the twentieth century ideas of like increasing production. Yeah. Um, in general, and that all of that efficiency stuff could definitely lead to like long term harm. And the question is like, would members of this enlightened technique be smart enough to see it and care and mm-hmm. do something. Right. Because all of this hinges on actually appointing people who are not just interested in maintaining, doing the same things over and over again that have worked. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for me to believe that they would necessarily do that. Right. Because yeah. as we were stating, like our version of the technocracy has to have started with corporate control. Uh-huh. And kind of these folks from industry, right? And 60 years into it, like 2018, might be a little different. But then again, people are traditionalists, generally. True. And it so much of that depends on, like, how the appointment system goes. Yeah. Right? Like, is it, like, just educational-based? Is it actually like that thing that they were suggesting of kind of watching somebody as their child and, like, guiding them into a job? Uh-huh. And would they be guiding them into these, like, government ministry roles based on, like, the way their teachers Mm -hmm. appraise their intelligence and their interests? Or, Mm -hmm. like, it seems to leave a lot of room for error until you introduce, like, an AI that controls it all. Which I think is, (laughs) to be fair, I think that's the logical conclusion of this kind of government, is to replace it with, like, a super smart, non-biased AI. Well, that could... That could definitely take over. We're going to come back to the environment part, but this is interesting. I think the AI could definitely very quickly be used to do all of the tracking of the consumption and make automatic decisions for production. Oh, yeah. And that's most of what the government's job is in the first place. Yeah. So then what's left over for the government to do? Interesting. Yeah. Because so much of that could just be automated. And it would right. be tr- almost trivially easy to do it with even today's computing. Oh, yes. I guess who's making the decisions about the value of things that the AI... I mean, is the AI tracking our... How much we value pristine wilderness or how much we value air quality? Like, See, back to environmental. Right. So <laughs> that's where you start getting into, we're not going to judge values, but we kind of have to judge values. Yeah, because nothing you know? is objectively plus or minus, really. Well, when it comes to something like that, where, like, you know, how do you compare, you know, having pristine wilderness around you to having, you know, the resources we need in order to build the X bomb or whatever, not bomb, but to build the the X machine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or how do we value keeping pristine wilderness versus the ability to feed 400 or 500 or 600 million people? One, One thing I think could be said is that, so part of industry is to exploit the fuck out of natural resources, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But the way of exploiting the fuck out of natural resources might be different. So yeah. in a capitalist society, you want to make as much money as you can. So you want to, you know, get as much of those resources as you can before the next guy does, etc. And you, and you want to build something with that that will wear out fast so that people right. have to keep buying it from you, right? Yes. But in a technocracy, you want to be as efficient as possible 
so that your resources will last, so that what you build lasts as long as possible and doesn't break, doesn't wear out, and so that you don't have to keep building them because that's inefficient. That's the backwards way to do it unless you're in it for the money, you know? Right. So so that might lead to a much more efficient management of natural resources. Right. Yeah. But you still have to get, you still have to ask those hairy questions. To me, it seems like having, say, in this, we're saying an AI that's making these decisions based on consumption. Right. It seems like, I mean, you're it's extrapolating based on how we've been expending our herbs. Right. Seems like a really good way to blow through all of our resources <laughs> right. as fast as possible. <laughs> like That may be true. Yes. Yeah. So the one thing I mentioned uh, in the first episode at the very end, the Modern Technocracy Inc. website had that transition plan 2016 where they started to figure in environmental impact into the right. cost of goods. Yep. They didn't give any formulas, though, of how you determine what sure. constitutes environmental impact. So yeah. how do you make those same value judgments again? And it's one of those things where I think if you got if you appointed the right people and yeah. put them in a room together, they could probably come up with pretty reasonable like projections for like what actual measurements lead towards like long-term sustainability. Uh-huh. But you would have to have the right group of experts, which would once again be dependent on having the right instructors like actually guiding them to becoming environmental ministers or whatever you know Mm -hmm. so it all comes down to that like meritocracy system actually working properly for Mm -hmm. like job placement and stuff because um you would need such an advanced ai to like actually predict that stuff on its own that it's beyond our current like it's i think it's outside of our real realm of possibility for the time being Mm. you know like you couldn't just make an intelligent, like a uh, automatic learning thing that could figure that stuff out on its own without getting significant human input, right? Which does fit the way the technocrats envisioned it. There were always going to be people watching over the machines. It's just right. the machines were doing the menial stuff. Yeah, watching yeah. over those machines, <laughs> making sure they don't get sentient. Yeah, <laughs> sixteen hours a week watching. <laughs> Watching out for <laughs> sentient AI. <laughs> and, right. and as we heard from the second episode, your entire job is going to be reduced down to one red light that boops <laughs> if, if, yeah. if the AI starts developing sentience. <laughs> uh, sir, why didn't we uh, make the AI able to feel pain and existential fear? <laughs> well, I feel like that's that's pretty good place to leave it. Okay. I c- I don't know if I dare do this to open up one more topic, but I kind of don't want to leave it without talking about gender because that was such an interesting part of the 30s technocracy bit. Yeah. How do you think gender would realistically end up playing out? I feel, so I'm going to be honest and cynical here. I feel like <laughs> it would be kind of a mess. Yeah. Because it would start with people. So you would start with this assumption that everything is completely equal based on the economic security. And that would like complete economic security for everybody mm-hmm. would equalize some things gender wise, sure. but it wouldn't change like these long-term patterns. And it wouldn't like the technocrats are not going to go into people's houses and make them distribute labor in a fair way in the house. Sure. And they're not going to, they don't really care about people's relationships up. They just theorize that, 
things might change a little bit. So they're not going to do anything about relationship violence. And they're also going to have this self... <sighs> this I get the sense of this belief that they know what's going on and, and this belief that they solved the issue. Mm-hmm. So I see them as being resistant to ideas that we need to make these changes. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, we've had women are equal. And I think that they might do, do similar stuff for racial things, too, where sure. it's just like, oh, well, on paper, you are equal. Because there's a lot of people who go back to that today where it's like, oh, we passed all these laws, so everything is fine. Right. And and it's not. And, and it's like women people. and people make these states like, oh, women make less because they choose these jobs that pay less. Ugh. You know, <laughs> like just bizarre. Yeah, right. Like people do a lot of mental gymnastics to try and justify the way things are. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's nothing that would change that, especially with the appointment systems. Like the appointment system is the thing that scares me the most about right. this whole setup where when you have human beings in there with their own prejudices, yeah. et cetera, the appointments are going to be messed up. Right. People might assume, oh, women are not as interested in engineering. So we will continue to not have engineers who are women. <laughs> that <laughs> right. sort of thing. And just these self-perpetuating deals. Right. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I I believe that most party of... Men seem to have the 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 red personality type that suggests that they would be good leaders for <laughs> uh, this for the environmental ministry work. Mm-hmm. You know, like that kind of stuff where it's just if that's why. Yeah. Like I was kind of joking when I said that the logical conclusion of all of this stuff mm-hmm. is an actual fully intelligent AI who controls it. Because if you get to this point where you're wanting to automate stuff and mm-hmm. take away the human bullshit, mm-hmm. right? Eventually, you want to have those decisions made by a machine that is not subject to human prejudices either, which is also a complete... There's a, there's a huge problem there, because if the machine is being programmed by humans, it takes on their prejudices. Right. Even if they their unconscious biases, etc. Right. So, it's not a real solution, but it somehow feels better than this like weird kind of meritocratic thing of like filling roles i don't know yeah maybe yeah i I don't know i that's my big that's my big problem like i don't know what do you guys think about the gender part of that like just especially like for me the the biggest problem for that would be the role assignment but i think that there's a lot of other gender issues that would not be addressed by this and would continue to be problems and without a democratic system in place to try and adjust them, the only adjustments would happen at the whims of, like, ministers and what mm-hmm. have you. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's... I was thinking that when we built our timeline, too, we sort of skated over the... I mean, that's the sort of the the whole issue in implementing the actual technocracy right. is that the appointees and the appointers is right. that kind of weird paradox yeah. <laughs> where we don't really have either and i think that would be where you definitely you'd get the people who are already oh we have the people that are already trained for these positions well those are you those know. are men yeah right? yeah yeah um so yeah i would agree i mean i also i would say counter argument to that is that you are eliminating income yeah and you know by definition you you do have income equality then. Right. So you have income equality, but it's people would then be arguing over prestige and over jobs right. that they prefer doing, etc. Right. So it's like, in some cases, there might be people who shy away from certain jobs because, or who are less interested in certain jobs because 
There's some people who go for certain work just because of the potential income stuff. But I feel like there's just a lot of messy things. And- yeah. Right. I mean, I agree with you. I think my counterpoint would be that with without having to rely on then, say, a husband for income, you would have a lot more room for feminist thought and and the feminist movement. And yeah, an extra 24 for- hours a week for it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially among, you know, non-white, upper-class, educated women. Yeah. Well, kind of just tangential to the topic, really, but just as a cherry on top, just what femininity would become is kind of interesting yeah. to me. Based on what I've heard recently about what happened in the Soviet Union and after the Soviet Union in Russia. So, like, the communists were, of course... Um, they had basically gender equality and from quite early on. Yeah. Um, the Soviets were some of the first to grant suffrage, for example. Um, and there were women in the war, women soldiers, women cypers, women pilots, etc. And like the images of what they wore and stuff back then, what the image of femininity was, is kind of like drab, seemed like. But listening to the Eastern Border podcast made by my friend Kristaps Andresons in Latvia, he was describing how women are almost hyper-feminine now hmm. because for so long they were given a masculine mold to kind of fit into. Mm-hmm. They're super tough, yeah. according to him. But also, like, like young Russian girls, like, every one of them dolls themselves to be just, like, super glamorous looking. And I never realized it until he said that, but that's kind of like an assertion of self-determination. Whereas I otherwise would have interpreted it as the opposite. Sure. And I would also say that it's probably just because some of those, that gender equality was sort of, yeah, forced on them instead of it being like a natural, organic sure. grassroots movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, guys, I think we I think we should end it there. Yeah. Yep. That was a really, really interesting discussion. Definitely. So thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show for the whole series. And uh, yeah. That's good. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, that's it for our show today, folks. For our final episode of this series, we have got something super, super special for you. Are you ready for this? We have got an interview with an actual card-carrying technocrat today. Because remember, as we said, this particular idea, technocracy, although it's past its heyday, is not actually dead. There is still a small technocracy movement, so we are going to talk to Justin Lazara, who has graciously agreed to come on the show, and with his help, we're going to try to find out what the movement is like today, how it's changed since the 30s, and maybe get some answers to the stuff that really left us puzzled, like, for example, how to deal with the whole appointees appointing other appointees kind of thing, that sort of stuff. So definitely join us in two weeks for that, you won't want to miss it. Meanwhile, remember right now, if you review us on Stitcher, specifically Stitcher, you get a free portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a modern hipster technocrat, a technosexual, if you will, sipping government-produced stimulants in the hippest urbanate around, which I suppose technically would be all of them equally. (laughs) Anyway, I'll make you look awesome. So I'll see you next time for our finale episode of this series, I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.